0: Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to cover several topics that start to sound a little bit disconnected. The first one is that we're going to talk about the idea of entitlement. What does that really mean? We're going to start talking about it in terms of consumers. Are consumers more entitled today or not? And then we're going to shift a little bit to the younger generation. We often say that we feel like millennials are entitled. And what we want to do is to dig into some research and ask. What does that mean, how can we tell, and is it true? We're also going to look at what does that mean we do if people are indeed more entitled. Now, once we've covered that topic, I want to turn to one that sounds unrelated but actually is tightly connected, and that's the notion of what it means to be strategic. And then lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about how you market yourself, Now, while I think all of those topics don't sound like they're connected, I think by the end of the show, you're going to realize that they are. And the underlying theme is marketing, particularly marketing in today's environment. So with me today is Hank Boyd. Hank is a clinical professor of marketing at the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. He's also a managing director of, at Ombudsman LLC, a diversified consultancy, and he's licensed to practice law with a specialty in intellectual property, um, licensed both in Maryland and in Wisconsin. Hank's opinions have appeared in a wide number of places, like the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Business Journal, even on CNBC, And over the course of his academic career, he's taught over 15,000 students the intricacies of marketing theory and practice. He's worked with clients like the NFL, ExxonMobil, Verizon, and SAIC. And currently, obviously, lives in Maryland with his wife and his daughter, Giselle. So Hank, welcome to the show. Well,
2: thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: So am I, so am I. I. I'm kind of intrigued with this idea of entitlement. And let's start with that one. Um, So you've done a bunch of research in this area, particularly looking at consumers and whether consumers are entitled. What does entitlement mean and so forth? So tell us a little bit about that. What does entitlement mean to you and why does it matter?
2: Okay, well, let me set the stage. <clears throat> in terms of most research topics, and you know this from your own experience, you have these moments, and it's usually when you're away from your research, and I'm watching a classic film, The King and I, Yul Brynner, and, of course, the lead role, and I was struck by his amazing performance and just the way he was above everyone else. He was the king of Siam, what that meant, and how he would interact with people. So a little light bulb goes on the head, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, this guy's entitled. And then I started to say, well, what does that mean in the context of the retail space? When you have consumers, do you have some that are more entitled than others? How would you capture this construct? How would you operationalize it? And going forward, is there something here in terms of what we can do in terms of the body of knowledge and research that's out there in marketing? So sure enough, I started digging. And after some excellent training at Duke University, I said with a co-author of mine, uh, Janet Helms, and she is just a legend. She's up at Boston College right now. And I said, this notion of consumer entitlement, can we capture it in a scale? So we came up with something called the Consumer Entitlement Inventory. And what it was was a culturally driven measure. And what we wanted to tap into, this construct that we're after, is to say, let's assess the customer's tendency to expect special treatment and automatic compliance with his or her expectations by the firm. And it hadn't been done before, and I'd gone through my exhaustive literature search We were sort of nibbling at the margins, but no one had really said, let's come up with an instrument or metric to actually measure this thing. And that's where the road began as far as consumer entitlements concerned for me.
1: I I can see, I love this notion that it comes from watching the movie The King and I, um, where you see an individual being entitled and then asking the question, are consumers entitled? I feel fairly certain anybody who has dealt with customers in a regular basis would agree with you that some certainly appear to be more entitled, meaning they want more special treatment and they want you to do exactly what they want, whether that works for the company or not. So I'd agree with that one. Now, in your research, you have this index, in your research, did you find that there are a group of consumers that are entitled or are all consumers entitled in some way?
2: Well, it's an intriguing thing. It's a personality construct. So let's say that everyone has some modicum of entitlement, and some people have really pronounced levels, and other folks are sort of in the mid-range, and some folks are kind of like more or less where you say someone is really – very altruistic and they care about other folks and they have a very low score, if you will, on this consumer entitlement inventory. And what's kind of intriguing about it is that when you're developing a scale, you can imagine it's a funneling technique. You say to yourself, okay, if we develop the scale and we have these declarative items that folks will make these statements and we'll try to tap into their personality, we started with a very large pool and we just funneled our way down into the items that really seem to capture the construct. Once again, when we devise this instrument, it's in a retailing space. And so what we ended up when all the dust settled after doing our fancy factor analysis and all this good stuff, is that we came up with nine items. So let me just rattle off the items and just to give our viewers a sense of what's going on here. Number one, in some real sense, I feel that a store's personnel should cater to my every whim. That seems to capture it. Number two, in this modern age of technology, I should be able to ask a salesperson any question and have it answered instantly. Number three, as a valuable customer, I've learned the right to deal exclusively, or I'm sorry, I've earned the right to deal exclusively with a store's most talented staff members. Number four, I don't care if a store clerk is a rookie, he or she ought to know how well a given product works. Number five, I desire absolute empathy from a store clerk when I have a problem. Number six, with all the money stores spend on advertising, I expect my merchandise to be perfect. Number seven, at all times I want store clerks to address me in a formal manner, sir or ma'am. Number eight, I deserve to be taken to where a particular item is in a store, not told, oh well, it's on aisle three. And finally, number nine, I absolutely believe in the saying, the customer is always right. So just using those items on what we call these Likert scales, these seven-point measures, we could start to tap into this. And it was rather fascinating because we had a huge pool. We had 410 subjects. Now, granted, they were undergraduates, but to have them go through our instrument and start to figure out, are these the things that really capture this construct, I think we did it. So I know that sounds okay. rather optimistic, but I, I really do think we captured it.
1: I have no doubt you did it because I mm-hmm. think those are very interesting. Now I'm not sure I'm going to get all nine of these, but I'd just like to repeat a couple of them for people who didn't catch, every, you know, remind us again. In a retail context now, I walk into a store and I expect the retail clerk to cater to my every whim, to mm-hmm. ask any question at any time and get an instant answer. To deal, I want to deal exclusively with really people who know what they're doing, talented people. That's Um, right. I should um, clearly, uh, the clerk should know how the product works and what it's doing. I want empathy when something goes wrong.
0: The merchandise
1: should be perfect. Mm
0: -hmm. I expect
1: to be treated formally, or we might say, with significant respect. I exactly. want people to take me to where the item is, and the mm-hmm. customer mm-hmm. is always right. Okay, I didn't do too badly on those. Not bad. Did,
2: uh, yeah, 100%. How's that?
1: Okay. Um, okay. So okay. I can see, I mean, it certainly resonates with my experience of watching some customers that they mm-hmm. would have more of this entitlement thing than others. And is that right. what you found? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, okay. and it's one of these things where, like you said, there's certain behaviors that would manifest themselves. Like if you're dealing with somebody who's highly entitled, and let's say there is a, a server, service failure, uh, something didn't go right. And you would expect maybe this person, if they're high on that score of, in terms of the scale we've come up with, they'd be very discourteous. And you would mm-hmm. see these emotional outbursts. You might even see complaining and uh, vocal complaining, this sort of thing, where someone really comes across as very irate. And mm-hmm. so very much, I'll, I'll sign it to the notion of being a petulant child. So what okay. do you do in that moment when you've got this person that's acting poorly? What should be done?
1: Okay. And what okay. should be done? Please, do you have an answer? Do I have an
2: answer? I would say that uh, based on the fact of when we came up with this construct and we went into literature from psychology, we were saying that, okay, all roots lead back to this notion of narcissistic personality disorder. And so we started to look at sort of the instruments that were there, and building from it, it was this idea that you really have to sort of mollycoddle, you've got to find a way to take on that sort of parental role of saying, okay, I am dealing with sort of a child, and I can't give in to, if this person's yelling at me, you can't start yelling back. If this person's acting crazy, you've got to be that calm, rational parent that are going to slowly walk them back from the ledge and say, hey, it's going to be okay, let's take some deep breaths, here are some of the things I can do to make you feel better in the moment. Case mm-hmm. in point, just last night I was at Chipotle, and I enjoy Chipotle, and I'm waiting to place my order, and when I got up there, a young lady said, well, sir, right now we're sort of waiting on the chicken, and is that a problem? I said, no, no, I understand. No problem whatsoever. And before I could even say anything to the effect of, oh, this is wrong and you guys should be more streamlined, she immediately said, hey, can I offer you a drink? Would you like to get a drink over at the machine? So already she was going to diffuse the situation that might arise had I been a highly entitled individual in terms of this scale that we've come up with.
1: Yeah. Okay, there are three questions I want to follow up, but first I have to make a comment. I know that somewhere in my life, teaching services marketing, I used to say to people, you should say things like, I can understand how you feel.
0: But can Mm -hmm. I just
1: say that the last way to diffuse a situation in this moment is to say, I can understand how you feel. (laughs) It doesn't work very well. But as you're rightly saying, doing things that calm the other person down,
0: that Mm -hmm. give them a
1: distraction, that offer some benefit in exchange for the inconvenience and so on, and have a ready set of those that are not pandering to an Mm -hmm. individual, probably diffuse it. I want to go backwards, though, Hank. You've mentioned two things in this. Um, One is that this notion of entitlement is tightly linked to altruism. To people who are willing to be helpful to others, or if we pick on Adam Grant's research, givers and takers, is that true, that when people are more entitled, they're less altruistic?
2: Based on the research I have, yes. It's really much, when we think of narcissism, a self-focus. So when you build from it's all about me. Then these people are not going to have the ability to reach out and empathize with others and say that, wait a minute, you're just a regular person, there are other people in the line. No. The person who is entitled says, I come first. I should have my needs taken care of and forget everybody else. It's all about me. So that total inward focus. So they would be very much the opposite of someone who's altruistic and someone who's sort of saying, hey, I can help other folks, and it's better to go that way.
1: Okay. All right. So more of the takers, if we use Adam Grant's Mm -hmm. language. And then that answered my second question, which is it really is tied to narcissism, Uh, recognizing that narcissism is a complex construct in and of itself, but that more self-oriented oriented. oriented.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. Okay. All right. I'm going to bet everybody's listening to this is sitting there saying, yeah, I get it about customers, but my real question is about my employees. So let me ask the big question. I know your research is around the retail environment, but Hank, I want you to take your experience and your intuition and translate that to employees. So, for example, the thing I hear more often than anything else at the moment is the younger generation millennials and just entering Gen Z are quote-unquote entitled. Uh-huh. Now, everyone who's researching the attitudes of millennials is going to question that language and whether that language is actually helpful because I've painted them in a box. Right. But that notwithstanding, what's your intuition about millennials and Gen Z? Are they more entitled?
2: Okay, if we were to measure on average, sort of in the main, if you will, I would say yes. They'd probably score a little higher and it would be statistically significant on a scale. Does it make it unmanageable? I'd say no. But then again, out of fairness, we have to say, well, if you are entitled, it has a lot to do with, I guess, one's upbringing, where you're coming from, that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. If
2: we look at boomers, most parents now are from the boomer generation. That was an interesting time that if you grew up in that time period of the 50s and 60s, and you're a kid, you're in a pretty safe environment. It was a good time economically. Dad could be out there working. Mom could stay at home. You got a real sense of saying, hey, things are great. The American dream's possible. All of that's there. And so when you subsequently go on to become parents, you're sort of saying, okay, I'm going to be less entitled. But if you contrast that upbringing of boomers with millennials, now millennials went through a lot. You talk about a short, sharp shock. You're talking things like latchkey syndrome. There was high divorce rates, blended families. And so coming out of that, where suddenly there's a shift in the economy from what was manufacturing now to an information age, there's more emphasis on you better come up with something quick. If you go to college, you're going to have huge college debt. How are you going to manage this? So all of a sudden, if it's kind of shaky on an economics front, also on, in terms of an emotional feeding of one's needs and in terms of developmental stages, there are going to be repercussions. And so I don't think it's surprising that we find that millennials come out with some of the outlooks and values where they say, okay, I tend to be a little impatient. I'm very opinionated. Because my opinion matters, and I tend to be very inquisitive. I'm asking lots of questions about the system, this sort of thing. But once again, I think that employers have probably found that with this generation, you can sort of say, well, let's just get to the heart of the matter and cut to the chase and say, here's what I need in terms of your performance. Here's where you're doing well. Here's where you're not doing so well. So, transparency and checking in them with them frequently. It's not one of these things where you think, oh, you got a yearly evaluation or a six-month evaluation. If you can give me feedback once a month, that's going to mean a lot to a millennial because they want to know, how am I doing, give me the numbers, and if I have those numbers, I can run with them.
1: Great, great. And that's consistent with all the other research I'm seeing um, from people who are studying the millennials in depth.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, I, I think it's fair to say that... The millennial generation kind of got a little bit of a um, raw deal. That the economic environment is not as strong. The competition Mm -hmm. for positions in place and performance in schools and testing and grade has seems like it has just gone up compared to what a boomer generation went through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Information is always at their fingertips, it has been at their fingertips from the very beginning. So, this notion that anybody is reachable and I could ask anybody anything is kind of just accepted as a norm. So that looks like entitlement to those of us who didn't have that set of norms.
2: I agree wholeheartedly because what's fascinating, you saw this this sort of disruption happening with millennials. All of a sudden, your child is more like a peer or more of an equal than a child. And I really see it because my daughter, bless her heart, I love her tremendously, Miss Gigi. She's part of Generation Z. And so mm-hmm. in her world, when I think of her upbringing, she's had helicopter parenting, all right, guilty as charged. She she talks about being a bully buster. She's very proud about that in her school. She's a bully buster. She understands the notion there are these safe spaces. She seems to already understand that, okay, there's all this technology, as you said. This Generation Z is used to having five screens open at one time. So whether it's smartphone, TV, laptop, desktop, tablet, all right there, I can get something I want to know. And as far as the learning is going on, there's a lot of do-it-yourself So I'm always struck by the fact that when Gigi was learning to read, and she did something I thought was very, very insightful, and of course, she's my child, I'm biased, but she would watch things, and she'd put on the closed caption. And I'm like, Gigi, why do you want closed caption? You're watching this Disney movie. And she's like, but Dad, I can hear it and learn how to read at the same time. So this ability to be self-taught becomes very important, I think, for this generation going forward. And once again, the notion that your child is more like an equal than a child seems to be something that's out there in the culture.
1: Yeah, and that's going to leave people who are not used to that feeling a sense of entitlement from the child mm-hmm. um, or from the younger young adult to take it out of the Gen Z and back into the millennials sense. Uh, one of the things that I have been struck with by millennials is this belief that they can, and probably in fact can, learn anything, become an expert in anything, and then compete with an expert on knowledge. It's been really fascinating watching that willingness to just, well, I'll go and figure out what the facts are and I can sort it out myself. I think you're right about the do-it-yourself um, learning. Okay, now this leads me back to your whole customer thing. Have you done any longitudinal work? Are we finding that customers or people in general are feeling more entitled over time?
2: Well, no, I haven't done anything in terms of longitudinal studies. I mean, for the consumer entitlement inventory was a piece of work I'd done some years back. And given the nature of my career, as you said, I was a clinical professor. I sort of put all my research projects on the back burner and said, okay, I'm going to do teaching and consulting going forward. Now, you're not alone. Other people have approached me. I've had folks send me emails at random saying, hey, I work at an auto dealership, and I love this paper. Have you done anything else afterwards in terms of this paper? So in that sense, no, I haven't.
1: But okay. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. So I want to take a break, but let me just sort of make some summary points here. The notion is that it is possible to assess whether a consumer, particularly in a retail context, or an employee, or an individual in general, Is more entitled or less entitled. And the notion of entitlement is it's a personality scale where we go from low, very low entitlement, more concerned about other people, to very high entitlement, more concerned about me. Getting what I want, having people to cater to my special needs, getting instantaneous information is the idea that comes in this notion of entitlement. If you're dealing with either customers or employees that are entitled, then finding tactics that give them a bit more of what they're looking for in the moment seem to be really effective. So Hank has talked about with customers, ways to diffuse the situation, ways to make some counter offers, ways to um, give customers a bit more of what they're looking for. And with employees, it's a way of setting standards of what you're looking for, more regular feedback and more transparency. All of those are the tools that let you either on the customer space or on the employee space accommodate some of the needs and wishes of your folks around you. I think it's an interesting idea, Hank, this notion of entitlement, and I think there's a lot more to come. I hope there's a lot more to come. Um, When we come back, I want to talk about this notion of being strategic. Now, the reason I want to do that is because Hank is a specialist in marketing theory and marketing practice. And people often get the feedback that they need to be more strategic. So I want to get Hank's view on what being strategic means. And I think you're going to find that it has a theme tied right back to this entitlement. So we'll be right back.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
0: Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: How's your business running it should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup like a finely tuned machine but if you're like most businesses yours may be running nowhere close to that Listen for
0: Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running
1: it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. With me today is Hank Boyd. Hank is a clinical professor of marketing at the Robert H. School Smith of Business at the University of Maryland. He's a managing director at UMS Budsman LLC, a diversified consulting practice, and he is also a licensed practice law in Maryland and Wisconsin and specialty in intellectual property law. Um, So we've just been talking about some of Hank's research and particularly this notion around entitlement and what does entitlement mean, what is it correlated with, are consumers more entitled, and then, of course, does that translate internal for employees in entitlement and what are our tactics and practices for that. Now, I'm going to shift gears a bit and ask a question that seems out of complete left field. But because Hank has all of this experience in marketing theory and practice, and because one of the big comments that people often get in a 360 evaluation is that they need to be more strategic. And most people who get that feedback have no clue what on earth it means to be more strategic. So I'm going to turn to a marketing specialist and say, Hank, in your view, what does it mean to be more strategic?
2: Okay, to be more strategic is to think ahead systematically. Now, what we advise our students to do, and I'm sure most folks have heard, you got to make some plans. You got to lay down some plans, it's very important. And so, even if you go back to great sort of texts that are out there, look at Sun Tzu's The Art of War, he talks about the general that makes plans. The one who lays down those plans is more likely to win the battle than the general has no plans whatsoever. All right. Well, people make their plans and they think I'm going to work this plan and I don't care what comes at me. I'm just going to march on through. However, life being what it is, you put this plan together, what you're going to do, data comes in, you start absorbing, you open your eyes, you start taking in information and you start to realize that, hey, wait a minute, I don't know if this plan can stay intact. I might have to improvise. I might have to alter. I might have to pivot. And the smart firms are out there doing this all the time. So they plan. They bring in their marketing intelligence. They bring in the information. And when they see how it lines up with the plan, if it doesn't fully square, they say, okay, well, we're going to have to make this adjustment. We're going to have to pivot this way. And it's an ongoing dance. It's one that once you start, you can't stop. And it becomes very important if you want to be successful that you keep at it. I think a lot of companies get in trouble when they come up with a winning product or service. They put it out there. Everything's lovely. It's wonderful. It's great for a while. And then, of course, the market shifts. Competition comes in the space they didn't anticipate. And all of a sudden, they're a loss. They're adrift. They don't know where they're going, what's going to happen next, this sort of thing. But if you are constantly planning, taking in information, and reacting accordingly, you'll be successful.
1: Okay. All right. So you did that in terms of a product or market. And certainly we see this all the time looking at a market. You have a great product, it's a lead, is making money hand over fist, everything is going great, and consumers love it, and so forth we go product or service. And then competition comes in, or uh-huh. price changes, and the company just doesn't move quickly enough. And then their standing drops down. But I think it's also true just in general in terms of being a manager or a leader inside any average organization leading a group to do something. You have your plan at the beginning of the year and what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it. And you deliver against that and it's going great. And then something shifts. And this ability to adjust is just – People either miss the timing of when to adjust, or they just uh-huh. can't give up the plan.
0: Exactly. So,
1: what's your view? Do people are people just missing the signals, or companies missing the signals, or is it that there's a reluctance to to pivot?
2: I think there's a reluctance to pivot. I think most firms now can see the signals, but invariably, what happens? One of the what is it? One of the best nothing breeds failure like success. If you've got something successful, why on earth would I blow up my own business model? I, I know there are lots of folks who in there going, it's working right now, I'm making money, it's great. But at some point, you've got to act on yourself as opposed to being acted upon by competition. And that is a hard thing to do. It is it's very, very difficult. And it's just not locked down in, let's say, the field of business. It's intriguing to me that I saw a piece where you have comedians, and these comedians are saying, well, if you're a stand-up comic and you've taken years to carve out material – and you go on the road and you rely on that material, it's hard to suddenly say, well, now i got to throw that material out and come up with new stuff because that's my bread and butter. That's how I paid the rent for all those years, and now you're telling me i got to come up with new stuff to stay relevant, and that is the key for all of us, irrespective of what field you find yourself in.
1: I think it's true forever. I really do think it's true everywhere, and I don't think it's just about the product strategy. I think it's true about my career strategy. I think it's true about... Um, you know, I've been successful doing this thing for this company for a really, really long time, and that thing can become less and less relevant if you're not clear. You're not adding that new stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I, I I want to talk about this thing, the pivot. You know, what does it mean to pivot? Um, so, what's your experience in how people can get more comfortable pivoting?
2: How you can get more comfortable pivoting? Well. Okay, that's an intriguing one. All right, let's see. How do I get more comfortable pivoting? Huh, well, can I give you an example? Certainly. Okay, all right. Let's see. Uh, Hank Boyd, his formative years. I remember when it was time to go to college, and I'm putting my list of schools together and where I want to apply. And my father, of course, who's very much watching me in this process, says, okay, the kids put down quite a few Ivy League schools and some other sort of prestigious institutions around the, the country. And... He sort of dared me. He said, son, I, I see these schools like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Stanford, they're great. But, um, you know, it would really please your old man if you took a shot and tried to get into West Point. I'm like, West Point? Yeah, Dad, West Point. Now, the way you got to think about me, I am like a geek. I'm a nerd, all right? I played sports, but I was never a real athlete. But I was really good in the books. And so I figured, well, okay, I will I will appease my father, and I will apply to West Point, which I did. I, I sent in my paperwork. And I remember in the process of sending in the paperwork, we had a colonel come to the House, and he said to my father, he said, okay, we've been looking over your son's paperwork. It looks great. And he's such a strong candidate based on his academics, we'd like to put him up, because you know you need to have a nomination either from someone in Congress, whether it's a senator or someone from the House of Representatives. But in rare cases, if the paperwork looks good enough, we'll put it up for a presidential nomination. So sure enough, they sent my paperwork off, Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, said, Hank. You got my approval, boom, West Point. So all I have left on the table to take care of is the physical, all right? So the physical entails doing some pull-ups and push-ups and all this sort of thing, and there's some running involved. Now, I remember working really hard. My plan was, okay, Hank, just go out there, hit the gym, make it happen. And so I worked very hard, and so I remember that the trials would take place inside the gym in my high school, and who shows up? But dear old dad's way up in the stands, I've gone through all of the various different obstacles they put before me, and the last thing i got to do is make the run in a certain amount of time. If I do it, I'm good to go. I'm in West Point. So what happens? I start that run. I'm feeling good. I'm going down the length of court, back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. i got to do it so many times. And on the last pass of coming back, my legs freeze up. I hit the floor and, and I'm on the ground. Now, I'm a little dazed. I get up. And I struggle. I mean, they just struggle to get there, and I don't make the time. And I remember going to my father, and you talk about crestfallen. I was just like, Dad, I'm mortified. I let you down. I don't understand what happened there. I, I, I failed you. And he said, No, no, son. He said, You were, you were a man today. And I said, How am I a man if I failed to make the time trial? He said, You were a man when you got up off the floor. So what are you going to do about it? So this is my moment to pivot. So I remember mm-hmm. saying to myself, Okay, I'm not going to let this beat me. And sure enough, they said, Hank, we'll give you another chance in like two months. Start running like a crazy man. Get in shape, whatever it takes, to make this thing happen. So sure enough, I remember working really hard for those next two months. I had to put out of my mind where it didn't work before. And sure enough, that second time around, the second bite of the apple, I succeeded. I was accepted to West Point. So there just comes a time when you get the evidence, things come in. And you respond accordingly.
1: Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I love that story. That's fabulous. Um, and I had never heard that story. So that's incredible. And I can imagine what it's like as a young guy trying to impress everybody and trying to achieve your goal that you think you've gotten planned and you fall flat on your face in the front of Wow, on so. my face. It would be awful. It would be absolutely awful. It strikes me that this is a lot like resilience, in mm-hmm. that stuff goes wrong, you need to see that stuff has gone wrong, so the realistic side of resilience, and then it's put it out of your mind. Don't keep mm-hmm. dwelling on it. Don't keep obsessing about it. Pick up and go on. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No. I want to come back to marketing for a moment. Um, I love that story. Great story. And I think that's exactly what this all looks like, too. But from a marketing point of view, sometimes the moment you need to pivot is way before you've fallen flat on your face. Uh-huh. So how do you begin to tell whether or not you're in the right direction or things are starting to go south? Do you have any advice on how to say, is this when I should pivot or should I just stay the course?
2: That's a great question. I, I, I guess as the shining example, when I talk to the students, I mentioned the idea of Netflix. And I said, okay, let's look at Netflix back in the day. And their business model was a, sort of a simple one. They were competing against Blockbuster, and Blockbuster said, you come to our store, you can pick up the movies you want, and the DVDs and all this stuff, but don't be late, because you'll pay those late fees, you'll get in a lot of trouble. And Netflix comes along saying, well, we can do it through the mail. We're going to mail you the DVD. You've got 30 days. If you're late, don't worry about it. Just get it back to us, and we can make this work. And sure enough, Netflix is making money. They're profitable, sending DVDs through the mail. It's a great business. And yet the person in charge, the the person who said, okay, this is my vision of the the company, said more or less, "Uh, we've got to do something because I don't think this is going to work going forward. I think what he was able to do is sort of project himself. I think it's Reed Hastings. I I hope I'm right about that in terms of uh, Netflix. He was saying, okay, as I look forward here – I'm saying to myself, if I'm a consumer and I still have to go through the mail of getting my DVD, it's kind of inconvenient. And I can see already there are all these devices, these mobile devices people have. Wouldn't it be great if you could have your movie on any of these devices? And wouldn't it even be more streamlined if we could stream it to you as opposed to doing through the mail? Now, once again, they're profitable. And he's saying, no, we're going to blow up our own business model and we're going to move to this streaming. And at the time, I'm sure the people inside Netflix saying, guy, what are you doing? Come on, we're making money. Why would you do this? But he was right. He could sort of look at the indices around him and say that if I'm in, put myself in the shoes of the consumer or the customer, how can I render more value? And value normally comes under this notion of convenience. And if I do that, I'm going to win. And sure enough, he called it. And it was very successful. That was knowing when to pivot before it was forced upon you.
1: Okay. All right. So if I take that point, there is a bit of being able to see ahead a bit. What's Mm -hmm. coming? What's the trend? What are people thinking about? What's being needed? What kind of changes are going to happen? Something I would say anticipate. Anticipate a bit what's going on. So if I come back to all of this and I distill it down into three words, this notion of being um, strategic. Mm -hmm. It is... Engage, meaning I'm going to make some plans. And I'm then going to anticipate what's going to happen, where this is going to go, what might come along, what else is out there that we need to be watching for, and then I have to be prepared to shift.
2: Correct. In other words, one of the things that's captured by this, I'm pretty sure you might be familiar with her work. Faith Popcorn is one of the futurists that are out there. And she has this term, I love the term. She says, as a good marketer, you've got to braille the culture. And that makes total sense. You, as a marketer, you, your responsibility is to always be cognizant of what's going on out here, what's happening in the world, how are things shifting and changing, because nothing stays the same. And so in a world where you know it's always in flux, you have to be watching, you have to be tuned in, that's the only way you're going to make it. And if you are one of the fortunate firms that you've had some early success, just because you've had the early success doesn't mean the world can't change on you. And you want to be positioned accordingly before it does. And if you do that, you'll be successful.
1: Okay, so plan, tune in, and pivot. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I think that is a wonderful capture on what it means to be strategic. Okay, so with me today is Hank Boyd. Hank is Clinical Professor of Marketing at the University of Maryland. He's also Managing Director of Ombudsman, which is a diverse consultancy. I can't say that out straight. And he's licensed to practice law in Maryland and Wisconsin. Hank has taught over 15,000 students on marketing theory and practice, and he's worked with clients like the NFL, ExxonMobil, and Verizon. We've been talking in this last segment about what it means to be strategic. And what I find interesting about this notion of strategic is, yes, it is about planning, but there's a lot more emphasis on looking, not just getting stuck in the place that you're in, but looking for alternatives, looking for possibilities, and the willingness to shift to pivot. If I come back to what we were talking about in entitlement, I think the ultimate issue in how you deal with entitlement, entitled customers or entitled employees, is your willingness to adjust, to shift, to see the trend, to see the need, anticipate it a bit, and be prepared for it, not just stay with what you've always done. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to take Hank's knowledge about marketing and turn it on its head and say, well, so what does that mean about marketing me? And in particular, I want to pick Hank's brain about some very public self-marketing activities, largely the U.S. presidential campaign recently. We'll be right back.
0: it comes to business,
2: you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: With me today is Hank Boyd. Hank is Clinical Professor of Marketing at the University of Maryland and also Managing Director at Ombudsman, a diversified consultancy. We've been talking about marketing. We've got marketing in terms of entitled customers. We've been talking about entitled employees. And we've been talking about what it means to be strategic, particularly from a marketing point of view around that. And I love the notion that being strategic is around planning and then anticipating And then pivoting, willingness to change. So I want to now take Hank's knowledge about marketing and talk about this lovely topic about marketing yourself. And I'm going to do this from a slightly different angle because Hank has some experience in analyzing the presidential campaign, um, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in the U.S., And taking out of that some lessons learned about what makes for a good marketing campaign of an individual. Now, we're going to do this in an apolitical way. So whether you're a supporter of Trump or a non-supporter of Trump really doesn't matter. What we're interested in is what can we learn out of this campaign about effective marketing of yourself. So, Hank, what's your perspective on this one?
2: Okay, well, this is a very interesting one. Uh, when I teach the marketing strategy course, I try to have a true discussion. And so one thing that I always try to avoid, if you think of Ferris Bueller's day off, think of poor Ben Stein. Anyone, anyone, anyone? So I try not to be that guy. <laughs> All right, so what we did, we looked at the recent presidential race of, of course, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And I asked the students certain questions and we were looking at it from a marketing standpoint. So irrespective of your politics, I would have a question like, you have to admit that Trump knows something about solid marketing strategy. And then I said, okay, what did he do right in some sense? And the students threw back at me, well, MAGA is in my mind. Make America Great Again was a great slogan. And they said it was a great slogan. Why? Because even though he wasn't the first to use it, Ronald Reagan was the one to actually coin the term. Trump picked up on it, and it fired folks up. It spoke to the notion that the American dream is not dead. It was anti-establishment. Students felt it was simple, straightforward, and it spoke to action. We're going to do something here. And also, from the standpoint of marketing, once again, who are you going after? What's your target market? They gave credit to Trump for saying, look, he tapped into the blue-collar workers that felt like they had lost their jobs due to technological displacement. Folks that are somewhat xenophobic that are out there, he spoke to them as well. Folks that were forgotten, lost in the system, suddenly he said, hey, I'm your guy. And of course, I pointed out on a historic note, it was very reminiscent of what Nixon had done with his notion of the silent majority. And further things that the students raised, and when we had this discussion of sort of saying what's going on with messaging, where the political planks on the platform, they raised the following things and rattled off the list pretty quickly drain the swamp, build the wall, repeal Obamacare, make our military bigger, bring back jobs to America. We're going to invest in infrastructure. And we're going to label China a currency manipulator. We're going to bring back coal mining jobs. And it was very quick in terms of, yes, these are the things he's talking about doing. Then, as we reflected some more on it, I said, okay, well, once again, we're talking about what is it that Trump did. Bear in mind, here's a guy who ran in the Republican primary. There were 17 other candidates, and these folks were governors, and they were senators, and other folks that really had seasoned backgrounds in politics, yet he managed to break through. How was it done? Well, the student said, well, Trump was already a celeb, so he was a bit of a national brand. He positioned himself as the classic outsider. And something else he tended to do, which they found fascinating, and I think it dovetails back to what we said earlier with this notion of entitlement and issues of narcissistic sort of personality, he had the ability to make fun of the other candidates. He would come up with these catchy phrases and labels, so he's branding the other candidates before they can brand themselves. One of them that was really devastating was against Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush had the name. He had the money. He should have been the nominee. However, Trump, when he was up there doing the debate, said low energy. Once he hit him with that label of low energy, it was pretty much over for Jeb Bush. Other points that the students raised were saying, well, gee, he got a lot of free press. We're talking to the tune of $2 billion of free media coverage. And he could be jovial. He could be funny and kind of laid back. So he wasn't PC in the least, and that sort of drew in some of these voters that were out there that were forgotten by the pollsters. I think that, of course, when all the dust settled, a lot of people were shocked the night of the election, I'm being one of them, thought that, yes, Hillary's got this in a bag. No problem, it's a done deal. But once again, you find that if you are really good at marketing, if you can get it right in terms of what is my brand, what do I stand for, here's my message, Here's what I'm going to do for you. And if it's something that fires up people, you can win.
1: Hank, one of the things that strikes me in this story is the counter of where I thought we would go. Mm -hmm. And that is because you see people who seem to be particularly good at self-marketing themselves in an organization. And sometimes they do it at the expense of other people.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So... And if you think about Trump in terms of the messaging around labeling Jeb Bush or labeling the other candidates or labeling his opponent in whatever country, he comes up with a nice coined phrase that discredits that person in all of our minds, and it's a lovely phrase and it sticks. Mm -hmm. The same thing can happen inside a company. And what this just points to is that if you don't brand yourself first and quickly and well you're then vulnerable for someone else branding you, such as not strategic, like gravitas, or whatever else. And then you see in the power of this one a catchy phrase. I mean, I think one of the things Trump has done incredibly well is he just seems to have a knack or somebody has a knack for coming up with a phrase that sticks. It's memorable. Even if we don't like it, it's memorable.
2: I agree. Because that's so important that Case in point, Hillary had a lot of experts around her, and they were saying things like, okay, let's try this slogan. I'm with her. All right? And they they tried that for a while, and they let it go. Then love Trump's hate. And then the official slogan became stronger together. And they aimed for inclusiveness, and they wanted to say that all of these different factions will come together on the Democratic side for Hillary. But it didn't really speak to action. It didn't fire up people, and it wasn't something that managed to stick. And it's so important what actually gets into memory. So I agree with you 100% on that one. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day from a marketing standpoint. Because if you are first as far as saying, okay, I'm going to paint this picture. This is my canvas. This is what I stand for as a brand. It is very hard for someone to come along after the fact and sort of say, no, no, no. It really looks more like this. Once it's stuck in the public's mind, once it becomes indelible, it's there. And it's going to be there a long time.
1: Okay. I can, you, can, you can, that is a really important message. So, you know, of all the things that we've talked about, about how do you brand yourself and how do you think about your branding and so on? This notion of why it's so important to do it, because if you don't do it, then others will do it for you, and you can bet it's not going to be the way you'd like it to be. But you okay. also said another thing. I think it's important, too, that whatever messages we want to give, whether it's you know a, an action we want to take or something we want to change or alter or it's our own personal brand – is that it has to be something that sticks, that's memorable. And you said a third, a second thing, that it needs to be actionable. It needs to Mm -hmm. speak to action. And too many times I think when we're talking internally about self-promotion, we're not talking about the actions, about the results. We're talking about attributes. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the action. I'm going to take this in this direction, for example.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with that. And I guess the other thing in terms of uh, from a marketing standpoint, marketing at its core, what we've been teaching um, the currency of late is to understand that it's really about what we call relationship marketing. So when you think about whether you're a politician, you're going after voters, whether you're a business, you're going after customers, how can I cement a relationship? How can I really get someone to say this brand is a part of my life? This company is a part of my life. This politician is part of who I am or, or, or my sense of self. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. So these things that you can do that build toward that relationship, and as we said earlier, this notion of entitlement, how do I make this person on the other end feel a little special, that they really matter to me, that it's really a one-to-one relationship that we have going on, even though I'm a big, huge corporation or company? I marvel at the fact just the other day, I recently, I picked up another year, I turned 54, and I got a call. It was an automated machine and it was from my insurance carrier, Allstate, saying, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. And I heard that and I was like, wow, that's so cool. You guys know it's my birthday and you're singing the song and they had some fun with it. But I have to imagine that those points of contact really matter to consumers. So in that one little moment, they remembered that, oh yeah, we got the record, we got the data, let's make it actionable, let's do something. And to simply have a phone call once a year, for our customers might make the difference and it's enough to deflect sort of the inroads that our competitions might make against the competitors might make against us
1: okay all right hank fascinating i think that same thing applies internally as well this showing people that they're special And that um, just that one-to-one connection, and it comes back to the relationships you create internally in doing that one little thing for somebody that's easy for you and that is a favor for them and that helps out. Those are the things that build a relationship. Hank, unfortunately, we're out of time. Fabulous show today and a lot of themes from entitlement to what it means to be strategic, to what it means to market yourself. And you see all in this, once again, the power of the relationships, the power of the ability to adjust, and the power of finding just the right thing that's going to speak to the right person. Hank is a clinical professor of marketing at the University of Maryland and a managing director at OMS And Hank, it's been a pleasure having you on the show.
2: Well, I've really enjoyed this tremendously. So thank you so much.
1: All right. Thanks. And tune in next week for yet another episode of How to Get Yourself Out of Your Comfort Zone.
0: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.